Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And we are getting technological about our menstrual cycles today. That's right. We're bringing our periods into the 20... First century? That's right. I guess they were already there because we're in it. Right. But right. but now they can be on our phones and oh. we can share our periods with each other. Sounds like a mess. <laughs> so I posted about period and fertility tracking apps on the Stuff Mom Never Told You Facebook page a while back because the New York Times published this article proclaiming that period tracking apps are changing girl culture. Interesting. So getting more people to talk about them? Yes. Like destigmatizing them, making periods fun. Oh, finally. (laughs) Right? Yeah. Um, And I asked Stuff I've Never Told You fans whether they use these apps and what their favorites are. And overwhelmingly, y'all said, heck yes, we absolutely use them. And... The user favorite appears to be Clue, which I've also noticed in a number of other period tracker app reviews that Clue stands out from the rest. So you get your period uh-huh. in the library. Yes. With the candlestick. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, um, and Tim Curry shows up and everybody's like, what's going on? Well, no, Miss Scarlet. I mean, it is <laughs> Miss Scarlet, right? Or since this is stuff I've never told you, that would be Ms. Scarlet. Um, and for people not aware of these period tracker apps, which um, in in use includes myself, I, I don't use a period tracker app, hashtag IUDs. Yeah. <laughs> but I wanted to pull up Clue to just start this episode off walking through what this involves, what this menstrual technology user experience is like. Yeah, give us the UX rundown. (laughs) It's the menstrual UX. So I've downloaded Clue, and the first thing I'm noticing is their logo. Mm, Looks like a a biohazard symbol. Kind of, yeah, red biohazard. Puffier, like if a cloud and a biohazard got together, used the period tracking app to have a baby. It would be this. That's what their symbol would be. So we love the symbol. (laughs) Next up, um, it's asking me whether I want to track my cycle, log my data, or connect to someone else's cycle. And this connecting is a new feature for Clue, where you and your girlfriends can finally actually (laughs) sync periods. (laughs) Yes, because side note, that doesn't really happen. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it's just happenstance. Yeah, but so I love, that's why I love, hence my raucous laughter off the mic. (laughs) So I selected for it to track my period, mm-hmm. and Clue is saying, hi, we need to get to know you. So I'm no. saying, okay. Do you know about how long your period lasts? No. Okay. Clue will use the global average of four days for now. Do you experience PMS? Uh, as my husband. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Okay, so this is going to be a very long process if I walk through all of them, but it's going to ask me about my birthday, my height, my weight, Oh, sets up period reminders. We've got birth control in here. Uh, there's a health app. So it really is wanting to know all of my stats. And this is pretty cool because, Caroline, how often when you go to the doctor and they ask you when your last period was, do you ever know? I 
Yeah, I never knew. But the thing is with having an IUD is you don't really yeah. have a period. And so that's what I just say. I just shrug and I say, I, IUD. I, yeah. I well, and we should say we have, you and I both have, because we're IUD <laughs> twins, the Mirena, which is the uh, hormonal IUD, yeah. which tends to lighten your period. Whereas people with the copper non-hormonal IUD tend to have heavier periods. So we went for the lighter option. Yeah, I had been on Skyla. I just uh, the other day was tweeting from the gyno about getting my Mirena. So, you know, it was an experience. It is an experience. But the whole thing, you know, reading about these period tracking apps, the thing that I find appealing about them, and I've never used one, and I don't really foresee myself using one, is that it seems like a really great way to be in touch with your health, not just your period. I mean, yes, um, it's a way to figure out how long and how heavy and how that corresponds with your health and all that stuff. But it seems like a really, well, these, these apps in general seem like a nice tool as part of your holistic approach to your own health of, of tracking how you feel and trying to see where that intersects with actual health issues going on. Well, especially considering how there are so many uh, health conditions that happen to biologically female bodies like endometriosis, fibroids, mm-hmm. polycystic ovarian syndrome, where women tend to have to go to multiple doctors yeah. to figure out what's going on. And I'm curious for people who use these apps, whether it has been a helpful tool for um, things beyond your menstrual cycle, just kind of seeing, providing a gauge of what your baseline is. Mm-hmm. Um, so I definitely see how these are really handy. And I also get the argument that they are part of busting up menstrual taboos. Yeah. I mean, if you wear a Fitbit, you know, and you're tracking your calories uh, in that are coming in and out, then, you know, period trackers, the next step. Right. Well, and you would have thought that when uh-huh. Apple launched oh, its yeah. health app in 2015, and allowed users to track more than a hundred uh, data points across, like all of our uh, health and well-being, excluding periods. Yeah. Do you think? What do you think? Now, I haven't read too much into that. Like, literally, read much about it. But um, do you think that was more a case of like we don't have enough women in tech, so there was no one in the room to be like, guys, half the population, periods. Uh, or do you think it was a case of they actively ignored menstrual cycles? I think it was pure oversight. Because this came up in our conversation with Gina Helfrich and Ashley Doyle a while back, oh, yeah. who ran this firm, Recruit Her, that focuses on legitimately, authentically diversifying tech companies because this is the stuff that happens when you don't. Yeah. But even though Apple initially overlooked it, they have since added that uh, uh, capability into the health app. But it kind of didn't matter considering how there are 40,000 other fertility and period tracking apps now available. Is that literal? Yeah. Oh, my God. How do you pick? I don't know. Well, I would go with whatever stuff mom never told you listeners use. So I would trust our people. I would go with Clue. Yeah. We are not being paid to promote Clue, but I'm just saying that's the one that listeners like the most. Yeah. But here's the thing. Aside from the basic utility of these apps and this technology, once we dig into the 
industry and how period tracking has evolved from this pen and paper thing that women and especially second wave feminists were into doing and really didn't need any technology for to today's period tracking landscape that has in many ways monetized Mm -hmm. our menstrual cycles. We start to see a lot of stuff happening in here that have nothing to do with our health and well-being. Well, yeah, that claim to have a lot to do with it and to help you be an advocate for your own health and well-being. But are they really just trying to collect all of our data so that they can monetize it or sell us more things? Yeah, exactly. So let's give a quick little rundown of pen and paper period tracking. This was before all of these 21st century period apps. Um, back when you've got the fabulous Venn diagram of second wave feminists and Catholics and where they overlap, it's... It's period tracking. Yeah, it's the, it's the fertility <laughs> awareness method, which feminists referred to as charting. And see, kids, before we had our smartphones <laughs> to track your period or or to chart, you would need a slide rule and <laughs> an abacus, an abacus, a telescope, <laughs> and a quill pen. <laughs> uh, actually, it was much simpler. Um, you would you would essentially. Just have to be okay with getting up close and personal with your body in the same way yeah. uh, that you have to when you use menstrual cups. So all that's involved in fertility tracking or charting is tracking your bleeding, of course, your vaginal secretions, your period flow, your sex drive, energy, breast tenderness, general physical health, all of the things that we are now inputting into period tracking apps. Yeah. And the fertility awareness method, which is more co- colloquially known as the rhythm method, is really all about taking your basal body temp every morning and watching when it rises because it spikes just a little bit whenever you ovulate. And you also have to pay attention to what's happening in your panties. Yeah. So you have to track your cervical fluid and the description of this. It really makes a lot of people squeamish because it talks about like the different consistencies. And, um, the one point where I was like, what? Cause I've never done this before, nor have I even thought about doing it was like at one point in the month, you've got to like, see if between your fingers, like how long, like the string of mucus holds together. Like at what point it snaps. And I was like, I just like kind of went off in my mind for a bit because I literally had never even considered doing that. Well, and what I had no idea about in terms of why the more mucousy cervical fluid means you're ovulating. Oh, yeah. Is because throughout the month, the structure of your cervical fluid actually changes, which is why it changes consistencies. In order to better trap sperm. Oh, my God. I know there was a description at one point that was like, yeah, when it's at its thickest, it's it's shaped like a lot of little tubes to have the sperm just shoot, shoot to the egg like they're on some sort of express train to parenthood. I had no idea yeah, all of that was going on in my dirty underwear. <laughs> I know it gives new perspective to that joke at the beginning of Jenny Slate's Obvious Child. You were just reading my mind. <laughs> Listeners, if you haven't seen Obvious Child, by the way, do yourself a favor. But it's not just the basal body temperature and cervical fluid you have to watch out for with the fertility awareness method. 
You also have to pay attention to your cervix shape, which when I first read that, I thought, <laughs> only my doctor knows how to do that. But in fact, all you need to do to monitor your cervix shape is uh, your middle finger. <laughs> Give a middle finger to your cervix. No fancy instruments are required. I all mean, you can have a clarinet. Oh, yes. <laughs> if you wish. But, but with the other hand. You need to you need to insert a finger into the vaginal canal. I love what a multitasker you are. You're I know. Just playing your clarinet, I checking always, your cervix. I always wanted to play the clarinet, <laughs> and now you can <laughs> with charting. <laughs> but all you do is insert. Uh, they suggest your middle finger, since it is the longest, into your vagina and. Feel for the texture of your cervix, and usually the softer it is, the closer you are to ovulation. So I can totally see why second waivers in particular were all about this, because it is about as body embracing as you can get. Yeah. You can't be squeamish. You are literally in touch with your body. Yeah. And this goes back to well before women's lib uh, fertility tracking actually came stateside in the 1930s after we had gotten some detailed German and Japanese studies on menstrual cycle lengths, which means that, yeah, it wasn't until the 1930s that we even knew how menstrual cycles worked across a calendar. Well, yeah, because before that, people just assumed that we would go out and howl at the moon once a month, and then we would just get our periods. Right. If only it were that simple. (laughs) I know, so you could at least plan a vacation. (laughs) And I am curious to go back and read more about its appeal in the 1930s, because I wonder if it was also the economy of having a more potentially reliable form of birth control, which would be super important. During the Great Depression. Exactly. Yeah. And about 30 years later in the 1960s, um, I mean, the Boston Women's Health Collective and the book and really the culture around the book, Our Bodies, Ourselves, was all about this charting stuff. I mean, it was a way to empower women because clearly, since we didn't know about clitorises, we didn't know about periods very much, um, clearly women had a need to be more in touch with their bodies. And this gave them that empowerment. Yeah. Well, and around this time, too, you still have laws prohibiting unmarried women from purchasing birth control. Right. And of course, birth control is obviously kind of a sticking point for Catholics. And in 1968, you actually see Pope Paul VI greenlighting this natural family planning, this charting, this fertility awareness method, because you're not... You know, using an outside force to prevent conception, so to speak, but you are naturally just what? You're timing your sex. Yeah. Yeah. So that you can have the procreative sex that you want yeah, or the, the recreational sex that you want. It's not like you're getting rid of the goalie. You're just only going to play soccer on the days when the goalie isn't there or is there? I don't know. It depends on if you want to get pregnant or not. I think that might have been one of the first sports metaphors we've ever dropped on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, that's why I fumbled. <laughs> and we're even mixing sports. I know. 
Uh, but <laughs> welcome to my brain. And for listeners interested in learning a lot more details about the uh, method and reliability of the so-called rhythm method, we have a whole podcast episode devoted to that. So we're not going to get into the nitty gritty here. You can go back and listen to Does the Rhythm Method Work and get all the info you need. But we did want to quickly mention that the rhythm method uh, went viral in 2007 after this German study was published finding a 0.6% pregnancy rate for women who practiced perfect fertility awareness tracking. And that perfect is the key word. Yeah. I mean, the same with using the pill, for instance, that your percentages of not getting pregnant depend on Perfect use versus, you know, normal human person use. So all of this to say that women and people who menstruate across the spectrum have been tracking their own periods and fertility for almost a century now. Yeah. And I mean, this whole technological bent around periods was called way back in the day. And I say way, way back in the day and I mean 1990. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, in 1990, biochemist and oral contraceptive co-creator Carl Gerasi published this article in Science Magazine that basically predicted the end of what he had helped create, synthetic birth control hormones, because he was arguing women one of these days would be able to track their blood hormone levels and thus their fertility with a simple cheek swab. You you take a swab of the cheek, you see how the hormones are doing, uh, you go out and you howl at the moon, and you know you're getting your period. And I'm so curious to know what Dr. Jurassi would think about this period and fertility, fertility tracking industry today, because we obviously aren't to the cheek swab stage, partly because it's not really in pharmaceutical companies best interests. Right. But it's interesting because we're clearly at the cheek swab stage for other massive things in our lives, like, you know, 23andMe or the Ancestry.com DNA testing stuff, where, I mean, there was an article about a girl who literally found her biological father through doing um one of those, like, 23andMe cheek swabs. Oh, wow. So, like, we're there. It's just a matter of exactly um, is the pharmaceutical industry going to continue to play goalie to, to refer to an earlier sports metaphor? <laughs> I appreciate you bringing that full circle, which is not a sport, <laughs> but it's like hula uh, hooping. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about why Silicon Valley investors want to get in that goal, so to speak, alongside those pharmaceutical companies and whether these period tracking apps are really just monetizing our menses. start reading all of these trend pieces and think pieces about uh, period tracker apps, menstrual cycle apps, pregnancy apps. I mean, it sounds pretty cool. You know, it, it does sound like a great way for women and their partners to actively be able to 
be in touch with their health, whether the goal is to get pregnant or to stay not pregnant. Um, and, and, you know, when I'm first reading all of these articles that Kristen and I were swapping, I was thinking, yeah, yeah, like this is, this is really cool. This is great. Like it's, it is a Fitbit, you know, for your ovaries or whatever. But the more you read, <laughs> the more you read these pieces and the more you pay attention to who is being interviewed, who is doing the speaking, who's doing the innovating, the fundraising, the fund giving, you start to realize, oh, this is a tale as old as time. You know, Kristen and I have done so many episodes, you know, teaching, for example, uh, the history of, of the gendering of teaching or librarians where a field was pretty feminine or female dominated until men figured out a way to professionalize and monetize it. And I don't mean to, to, you know, take a dump on, uh, these, these tech bros who are creating these apps for women and their partners to use, but it is something to keep in mind as you discuss the technology around women's bodies. Well, and also too, something to keep in mind is that the one big standout, um, from the, all of the guys who are getting involved with these period tracking apps is Clue, yeah, which was developed by um, a German software developer named Ida Tin. And what I also paid attention to as we were reading was how the guys framed these products versus how Tin framed these products, because you do see a bit of a difference, understandably, because Tin gets a period. Right. Presumably. Maybe she has an IUD, too. I don't know. Um, so there were just some very unexpected gendered patterns and how these are promoted and also some red flags about what this is really monetizing, what the real motivation is, because it's no surprise that venture capitalists would toss some money at this technology because, A, who does not like the buzzy ring of a Fitbit for your period? Okay, show it to me. And also, by 2018, women around the world will drop more than $23 billion on contraceptives, and Americans already spend $5 billion annually on assisted reproductive technology. And that's coming from a 2013 study from Transparency Market Research, which was cited in a terrific long read all about period tracking technology in The Guardian by Moira Weigel. Yeah, it was a great overview of all of this. And I mean, yeah, those numbers are staggering. And and, and the whole thing about uh, assisted reproductive technology is something that comes up over and over again with a lot of these uh, guys and gals in the tech scene saying, look, this is an information problem. That was one guy's quote, that if only we knew more about how women's cycles functioned and where their cycles intersected with other health issues, maybe we wouldn't have to spend so much time and money getting fertility treatments. Maybe we could learn about underlying problems. And I'm going to come back to that information problem quote because it stopped me in my tracks. Oh, yeah. When we were reading for this. Um, but that was uh, said in 2013. 
But we have to go back a year to 2012 when really all of this started happening. These period tracker apps really started to grab attention, not only in the app store, but also in tech media. So in 2012, Kindera really seems to be the first big fertility and period tracking app on the market. And it was concepted by a guy named Will Sachs and his girlfriend turned wife, Katie Bicknell, who had been previously using the fertility awareness method instead of birth control medications in 2009. So they start dating and he's like, uh, maybe you should go on birth control. And she's like, maybe you should get a vasectomy because Ooh. I'm not into all of this hormonal stuff. I don't mind checking my own cervical fluid and basal body temperature. So they realized that maybe this is something that technology could disrupt. But, you know, where whereas they were coming at it from the angle of we don't want to get pregnant right now. We want to use the this natural way to prevent pregnancy. Once they launched their app, they realized that a majority of people who were flocking to it were using it to get pregnant. To to better nail down those times of the month when they were most fertile, which that's even better if you're going to pitch this to a group of investors, because your potential market just exponentially increased. Probably not exponentially. There is a limit, I'm sure, to the number of uteruses (laughs) that you can assist. But the market is much bigger when you fold that into it. So what happens with Sachs and Bicknell is they move out to Boulder where Sachs attracts the Techstars founder, Brad Feld. And Feld and Sachs really start to develop this idea. This is where the whole Fitbit for your period tagline comes in. And as they're developing the story, Sachs and his uh, girlfriend turned wife, Katie Bicknell, start pitching it so that they can drum up some venture capital. And this is where things really start to get interesting because Katie Bicknell in particular, not Will Sachs, encountered some difficulties talking about periods and fertility tracking to rooms usually full of very rich men who were kind of squicked out. Yeah, I mean, she she told The Guardian that these investors were, quote, freaked out uh, when she was there in front of them talking about blood and mucus. Uh, she even she even uh, impersonated one of the guys by doing a bro grunt uh, as his reaction to what she was talking about. But the thing is, she said, yeah, I mean, you know, you've got the stereotype of the of the squicked out older rich dude who doesn't want to hear about periods and mucus. But she said, you know, the older female investors were even more uncomfortable than their male counterparts. Yeah, she said when women were in the room, they tended to, quote, just tune out. So, I mean, some fascinating dynamics happening in that room that we could also do a whole uh, podcast on. Um, but right out of the gate, there's the taboo that these apps are potentially busting. And also this resistance, at least anecdotally, to a woman selling a product for a woman's menstrual cycle and fertility. And I say that because in 2013, Bicknell ended up leaving Kendera completely 
in order to save her marriage to Will Sachs because it was just creating too much conflict. So she leaves. Sachs takes over and they find a woman to replace Bicknell. While all of this is happening, a guy named Max Levchin, who co-founded PayPal, also starts thinking, huh, this uh, whole fertility tracking thing could be a real gold mine. So he launches this Buzzy Glow app that raised, wait for it, $23 million in venture capital in two years. Now, obviously, the uh, someone who founded PayPal is going to walk into a venture capital investment room with more cachet mm-hmm. than a Katie Bicknell or a Will Sachs who are just starting out. Oh, yeah. I mean, I used PayPal just last night. <laughs> so I use it all the time. <laughs> it's terrific. But it made me instantly wonder whether this is also a reflection of the difference of a guy talking to other guys about this product that can make them money that also happens to deal with women's periods versus a woman standing there talking about blood and mucus to a group of men and women who are like, oh, my God, this is the last thing I want to see. This is a boys club. And a woman is in here talking about a menstrual app and just putting us even more into a pink box. I'm kind of projecting, but this is just everything that was going through my head as I was reading this. And all Max was the one who, when they announced the Glow app at the All Things D conference, described infertility as an information problem. Yeah, that's a really sensitive way to approach infertility for the millions of people who are affected by it. I mean, it makes total sense to frame it that way to the crowd sitting at an in-group tech conference. Mm -hmm. But that's when I was like, oh, wait a minute. Whoa, they are monetizing our wombs. 100%. I mean, granted, Glow is free, but Glow is making money from the data that we are putting into it. Well, sure. And I mean, whoever you are, whatever you're trying to make money on, one of your basic baseline strategies is how do I attract people who are not currently, you know, fill in the blank, using this thing, reporting this thing, who's not reached by this market already. And so if you're a tech guy and it's like, who... What what is not what has not been techified yet? What can we disrupt? Yeah, oh God. let's disrupt infertility. Yeah, I mean that really seems to be what the the big pitch is. And I mean we're not saying that everybody's motives here are bad or or that we we disagree with the idea of making money off of this idea. But the thing is, like, I think there is a different approach when you're when you're looking at it as here are a bunch of humans we need to help. Versus, like, we can make bajillions of dollars. Right. And it's also reminiscent to me of conversations we've had about empowertizing and using female empowerment and feministy vibes and outright slogans to sell products. It, it feels similar to suggesting that infertility can be solved simply by logging your data into an app. It just seems highly reductive in offering a mighty big promise to people and couples who are dealing with a 
very intense and sometimes emotionally grueling and sometimes physically exhausting issue. Yeah. And then, of course, there is the question. I mean, you mentioned data. I mean, there is the question of like how aware if if you are someone struggling with infertility and you're looking at this app as the solution to your problem or a potential solution, um, are you aware of the fact that they're data mining you? Are you immune to it because you've been on Facebook for so long and you just assume nothing's private anymore? I mean, there is the, the very great potential that having this population of of people on these apps will benefit science and that perhaps it will pull back the curtain on intersections of health issues and fertility. Um, but kind of in the meantime, things look a little a little shady. Absolutely. Because, I mean... We- <laughs> We need to address precisely how these are being monetized because uh, a lot of times these apps are free. So wonderful. So so why would we have a problem with someone providing a free resource for us? Well, because <laughs> nothing's really free. There is no such thing as a free lunch in Silicon Valley. I'm assuming, unless you're at Google, right? Don't they have like really nice lunches? I think so, yeah. <laughs> but there's this profit model split between Kindera and Glow that's really interesting where Kandera is focused on making money by building product. So they have something called Wink, which is a basal body temperature sensor that you can buy that will help you more closely monitor your fertility. Whereas Glow made money by setting up a partnership with Walgreens where it's like, hey, we're going to direct our users toward you and you can direct your, you know, pharmaceutical customers toward us, a little bit of quid pro quo. Not to mention that people's data is worth everything these days. I mean, an email list alone can get you a check from a VC firm, not to mention all of the different types of data. I mean, when I was flipping through Clue at the top of the podcast, they were asking me for my height and my weight and my birthday and everything, you know. And if someone knows my height, then they know everything, Caroline. <laughs> but Glow in particular stood out from Kandera when it was launched because it asks about your sex life, about sex positions, um, about all sorts of preferences and lifestyle factors that might in some way tangentially relate to your fertility. Um, and it also jumped out to me that Kandera's Will Sachs said, quote, right now people have relationships with doctors. In the future, it will be with a brand. So if that's not like monetizing our bodies. I don't really know what is. Yeah, I that that quote also brought me to a screeching halt because I was like, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. That's not the direction we want to go. I mean, as often as Kristen and I preach, like talking to your doctor, being an advocate for your health, um, you know, we talk about how long it takes for women to find a diagnosis for things like endometriosis and how important it is to be an advocate and be aware of your own health for this guy to be saying that, uh, you know, doctors, eh, it's not so much about the doctor as it is about the brand. Like you figure out your own health at home with all of these apps and gadgets. And then, you know, a doctor can just write a prescription. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of a new form of privatizing personal health where it's like, I no, I don't need to go to the doctor. I have my wink basal body 
temperature sensor and, you know, Wink knows so much about me, they have so much data, then they can take that data and tell me whether I should be, you know, tested for a thyroid disorder as well or something else that could be possibly going on. Right, which is why I cannot wait to hear from medical professionals about this topic in general, but specifically about the sort of unspoken, or in this case, like explicitly stated, uh, idea of taking medicine out of the hands of doctors and and putting it in your hands as the consumer, as a product. Well, and assuming that data is as effective as a doctor. Right. But at least from what we read, that's not really a sentiment that you hear so much from the Berlin developer Ida Tin, who in 2015 launched Clue, the Clue app, which intentionally you know, marketed itself as not a pink washed app, you know, really something that is practical for <laughs> women who just want to, like you said, be an advocate for their own health. And it was super successful. By the end of 2015 alone, it attracted 2.5 million users in 180 countries. Um, and because of the popularity of Clue and these other apps, this leads us to that New York Times piece that kicked off our conversation about whether these f- period and fertility tracking apps are changing our girl culture. Yeah, I mean, the New York Times thinks so. Writing about this, they said that these apps have helped shift attitudes. Uh, they've assigned cute icons to once unmentionables like heavy flow, maxi pads and period pimples. Um, they've helped women get in touch with not only when the period is due, but why it's late and why she might be feeling blue. Which, I mean, yeah, that's that's good. That's positive. That's absolutely great. Get in touch with your bodies. Um, but I will side-eye at uh, assigning cute icons to once unmentionables being a culture shift. Because that sounds like the same kind of thing as maxi pad commercials having to use the blue liquid. Right. Or, you know, running through a field with balloons right. is like feeling liberated. Not to say that we need uh, like a realistic rendering of a bloody tampon as <laughs> our iconography. Um, but I think it's more about our conversations around it than emojis. Um, and the thing is, there are a lot of women who use these that do derive a sense of empowerment from it. Um, the New York Times interviewed a developer in San Francisco who doesn't work on these period apps. She has just been using them for a long time. And she said something that jumped out to both Caroline and me, quote, when you see a technology that someone has developed specifically for you as a woman, it really legitimizes talking about your periods and thinking about them. And then she goes on to say how um, if we as a society encourage women to check on their periods, then we're giving permission to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And I agree. And I also ask who is giving us that permission? Who is making this technology legitimizing our periods? Because based on everything that we've seen so far, Ida 10 and Clue aside, it's a lot of men. Yeah. And and my question is, what are you waiting for? Or what were you waiting for? Why did you view your period as not legitimate 
before? Like not a legitimate health concern or, or aspect of your life? Well, and does it take technology created by men to legitimize a biologically female process? I mean, it's interesting though when you pull way back and look at this as an element of our history in terms of it took a man to quote unquote discover the clitoris. It took a man or groups of men to quote unquote like discover the period and menstrual process. So this seems to me to be another element of that, of women being like, oh, thank you men for allowing us to have hashtag period pride. Right. And I'm so glad you mentioned period pride because to me, the whole suggestion of period tracking apps changing girl culture, being the catalyst for that change is mistaking correlation for causation. Because if you go back and listen to, as I suggest you do, dear listeners, our episode all about period pride and how women today are posting photos of bloodstained sheets on Instagram as a form of protest, live tweeting their periods, especially to Mike Pence, (laughs) Uh, Newsweek publishing cover stories on tampon access and the destigmatizing of periods. That has nothing to do with period tracker apps to me. Period tracker apps and our excitement around them are part of, I think, this (laughs) Cultural shift that women initiated, this crimson wave, <laughs> you know, helped along by things like Hello Flows, viral commercial featuring girls saying things like vagina and menstruation. And P.S. That company was founded by a woman. So I, I, I just think that we don't need to lose sight of all of the things that we've done offline to push menstruation into the mainstream. And I'm glad that we have the technology there to uh, assist us in learning even more about it and getting even more comfortable with it. Yeah, but I mean, speaking of technology, there was a horrifying article, horrifying and enlightening. I think my brain almost started to combine those words uh, from Consumer Reports that found that there was this massive security loophole in the Glow interface. Um, and Glow, I mean, immediately took steps to fix it. They sent out a new version of the app that you could download. Um, but it goes back to, like, you know, all of these things are meant to not only make money for their developers, but also, you know, to put people in touch with their bodies to help couples get or not get pregnant or whatever, um, to help trans men uh, understand when their periods are coming so they can be better prepared. Um, but you, you can't ignore issues of security flaws, especially when um, with some of these apps, it's almost too easy for like an ex-partner, for instance, to view your data. Right. Um, And especially if that data involves things like the sex that you're having and other lifestyle factors where you are, um, that could turn very problematic very quickly because, you know, one attractive feature of a lot of these apps like Glow and uh, Clue is that you can sync up, so to speak, with, yeah, your friend if you want to do that, but especially for people who are trying to get pregnant or couples who are trying to not get pregnant, 
you can sort of track fertility throughout the month together, which is great. I also like that they are inviting partners Mm -hmm. into this process as well, because uh, especially if we're talking about uh, dude partners, yes, you do need to be more familiar with the the menstrual process and be more comfortable um, with all of that. But if you're going to use these apps, you need to read the privacy agreements because fertility apps and other like health apps like the Fitbit are not covered under HIPAA. So apps have a lot more liberty to use and, of course, monetize your healthcare and lifestyle data. Right. Yeah. So like you can't get a, a PayPal co-founder going to your hospital and saying, hey, for every woman who walks in these doors, could I get her her data on her height, weight, period stuff, pregnancy stuff, whatever? They'd, they'd be like, who get out security. <laughs> but he can just pull all of that stuff into a little data basket from the app and and use it however he chooses. And that data is especially attractive um, if it's coming from people who are trying to get pregnant because that is catnip for advertisers because people who are trying to get pregnant are about to buy a lot of stuff. Yeah. So it's concerning to me also that right now the FDA's policy for all of this is just exercising, quote unquote, discretion on pursuing privacy violations. But it's like if this is the future, if this is the future of health, if brands are replacing our doctors like Will Sachs thinks they will, HIPAA needs to hop on board. Fast. Hippity hop. Hip, hippity hop over there, HIPAA. <laughs> and in the meantime, for people who are using these apps right now, especially to get pregnant, there's a question of, are they really effective? I mean, is Max Levchin correct in saying that infertility is simply an information product? Because Glow now touts 150,000 pregnancies resulting from using their app rigorously. But that, again, goes back to the correlation versus causation thing. You know, are these pregnancies a result of people taking taking their health in both hands and shaking it by the shoulders and saying, we will get pregnant. Help, I will, I will find you. Um, or is that just, are the two things just correlated? Right, because uh, Wired Magazine actually went back and unpacked the study that came to that 150,000 number and found that the data only control for age. So you have a lot of other factors that right. could contribute to this. Well, a lot of other factors, but also the idea of like maybe the the number of pregnancies is so high because the people who already want to get pregnant are getting these apps and using them. Right. And they're probably doing everything in the book that you can possibly do to promote pregnancy. Right. In the words of one endocrinologist that Wired talked to, really what might be going on is Glow is measuring our motivation to conceive rather than actually helping you to conceive. So I'm really curious to hear from people on that, because this is an issue where you've got the users who are interacting with 
these apps every day, multiple times a day. And, you know, kind of having these apps become a part of their life. But then you also have tech developers influencing things. And then you also have the medical side of it. So I'm hoping that we'll hear from people from all of these perspectives. Um, but before we go, we do want to emphasize that if you aren't trying to get pregnant, if you're trying to not get pregnant, I should say, this is not a replacement for birth control and contraception. Yeah, nor is it a replacement for uh, safe sex practices as well. Exactly. There was even a 2015 study published in the Journal of the American Board of Family Medicine, which analyzed a whole bunch of these apps and found that all but a couple of them follow what they cite as evidence-based fertility awareness methods. And relying solely on an app to prevent pregnancy, quote, may not be sufficient. So basically, like, this is helpful, like, use them, but don't stop what you're already doing to prevent pregnancy. (laughs) So for me, like, this aroused way more skepticism than I thought it would. Um, I thought that we were going to you know, just have this fun, breezy conversation about, oh, this new technology. Oh, Clue, that sounds fun. Yeah, There's so many layers. Well, there are so many layers. And it's also just scary to me that there are about 40,000 of these apps out there. I'd feel much better if, like, the AMA came along and was like, here is our sanctioned fertility app or our sanctioned uh, birth control app. Um, But instead, you have all of these little, like, People's, you know, side project apps popping up in the app store, many of which, as you just said, aren't even necessarily using that evidence based fertility awareness method. And there are also some that don't even have any privacy policy agreements. So buyer beware or downloader beware because they're usually free. Um, because, for example, in 2013, a Financial Times investigation found uh, the super popular period tracker light app just straight up was sharing data with third parties. So um, it's it's a potentially really powerful tool, um, but by no means is it perfect at this point. So, listeners, um, did we totally just Debbie down <laughs> your favorite period tracker app? Um, I, for one, uh, would recommend Clue because Ida Ten is a female indie rad STEM woman, and I would like to put my monetized uterus money in her pocket. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm sure y'all have lots to say about this. Mom stuff at how stuff works. Dot com is our email address. Um, also, if you have any recommendations uh, for your fave period app, please let us know. You can also tweet us that at MomStuffPodcast or leave us a message over on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you when we come right back from a quick break. Well, I have a letter here from Sandy in response to our episode on women and heroin. And uh, Sandy said, I would love to thank you for talking about this. It's been ignored for so long, and I'm so glad that you, as well as many other news outlets, are acknowledging this is an issue. 
I work at a methadone clinic, and I wanted to share some insight. I know you mentioned methadone can be addictive, and I wanted to let you know that though you can become physically dependent on methadone, like a diabetic is dependent on insulin, it is not addictive. The commonly accepted definition of addiction is it's defined as a chronic relapsing brain disease that is characterized by compulsive drug seeking and use despite harmful consequences. This is a common misconception and many people think that dependence and addiction are the same thing when they are not. As a methadone clinic nurse and an advocate of my clients, I wish to let you know that there is a difference and this misconception leads many away from seeking treatment. We treat so many people who have other medical issues, HIV and hepatitis C, who without methadone could not get off of other opiates, reduce health risks, and seek care for current problems. Methadone allows our patients to work and live a quote-unquote normal life. There are, of course, people who abuse all systems, but I wish this would not be a deterrent to the whole system that can do good for so many. Again, I just wish to educate, not chastise. I love you guys, and this is a very common misconception. Thank you so much for the hard work. And Sandy, thank you for the very thoughtful feedback. So I have a letter here from Claire also about that episode on women and heroin. And Claire writes, I'm currently pursuing my Master of Social Work at the University of Illinois, and I'm in the internship portion right now. I intern at a substance abuse treatment facility where I see the way that trauma, inadequate mental health services, and substance use collide. Since I work in a nonprofit, most of our clients are on Medicaid, and I've been referred in by parole, probation, defects, or drug corp. I really appreciated how well you handled the discussion about addiction and substance use. Honestly, I don't love working within the framework of addiction because so much of the treatment is focused on the substance use rather than talking about the other factors that have led to substance use. Statistically, a huge portion of individuals that struggle with substance use also have other comorbid disorders. However, I find there are very few clients who don't have some kind of trauma or pain that has led them to begin to use in an unhealthy way. There are only a few clients who would tell you that they use because it was fun and who are telling you the 100% truth. Most of our clients are dealing with mental disorders, trauma history, poverty, community violence, just to name a few things. It's hard as a new member of the treatment team to work with individuals who have become so numb to these facts about our clients that they fail to see how much they can, can and do contribute to a client's pattern of use. And yet none of these circumstances or comorbidities are excuse enough for a client to keep using. The clients we actually have the greatest success with are those referred by defects, especially the women. They're usually incredibly committed to getting their children back, which helps them fight through treatment and all of the appointments they have to keep while maintaining employment. I was thrilled to hear about the inpatient facility in Iowa that allowed women to bring their children and still access that level of care. I also wanted to thank you for your episode on the Welfare Queen. It was a nice refresher on social work policy, my favorite class. And I know my professor is directing her current students to listen as a way to study for the midterm. Very cool. Public assistance and welfare are not the same, as public assistance is an umbrella term to refer to any aid coming from the government, which includes housing, SNAP, etc. Looking forward to the future episode on women in social work, please, all caps, touch on the fact that we don't get paid very much because we are also given good karma. 
Ooh. Yeah, we're definitely going to have to come back to look at women in social work because there is a lot there to discuss. So thanks for kicking off that conversation, Claire, and sharing your insights. And thanks to everybody who's written in to us. MomStuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts with our sources, so you can learn even more about period tracking apps. Head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 